Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you and a very warm welcome to all of our listeners up and down the country to another live edition of The Breakfast Show here at The Voice of Islam. Uh, today's segments are particularly interesting, um, as usual. Um, and in um, our first segment this morning, which will start around 7.30, we'll be talking about skills required for surviving in the wild. Um, and as usual, we'll have various guest callers helping us understand these specific topics in greater length and detail. Um, and in our second segment, which will start around 8.15, we'll be talking about how society is understanding and responding to the issue of honesty. So it's a very uh, thought-provoking and um, intriguing topics, to say the very least. Um, but before we do jump into all of those, uh, a look towards the morning papers. The first article in front of me is a reporting of um, a crackdown, a UK-wide crackdown on cannabis. And the BBC here reports that the police have seized up to £130 million worth of cannabis plants and arrested almost 1,000 people in the UK's largest ever crackdown on organised crime. More than 180,000 plants were discovered in raids across England and Wales in June. Officers also seized 20 firearms, £636,000 in cash and 20 kg of cocaine with a potential street value of £1 million. The operation has been described as the most significant of its kind ever run across UK law enforcement. Operation uh, merely targeted what law enforcement believe is a cash cow for organised crime gangs. Um, they were also involved in other offences such as money laundering, class A drug sum- smuggling and violence. Cannabis is a class B drug, not class A like heroin or cocaine. But large-scale cannabis cultivation is seen as a key source of illicit income for criminal gangs. And the aim of the month-long operation was to disrupt OCGs by taking out a key source of their revenue, apprehending those involved and gathering intelligence on how the networks operate. Steve Jupp, the National Police Chiefs Council, uh, the MPCC that is, lead for serious and organised crime, said the operation has successfully disrupted a significant amount of criminal activity. We know that organised networks involved in cannabis production are also directly linked to an array of other serious criminalities such as Class A drug importation, modern slavery and wider violence and exploitation, he said. The intelligence gathered will also help inform future law enforcement across the country. Around 11,000 officers from all 43 police forces in England and Wales, as well as the National Crime Agency and Immigration Enforcement, coordinated over 1,000 warrants in June. Of those arrested, more than 450 people have since been charged. So a huge crackdown, and I've also got the pictures in front of me of the cash and indeed the firearms that were seized. Um, so some incredible work in uh, catching these culprits. A move towards um, oil. Um, the the oil giant, that shell that is, warns cutting production is dangerous. Um, Oil Sawan insisted that the world still desperately needs oil and gas as moves to renewable energy were not happening fast enough to replace it. And that's the boss of uh, Shell 
Uh, he warned increased demand from China and a cold winter in Europe could push energy prices and bills higher again. Mr. Sawan angered climate scientists who said Shell's plan to continue current oil production until 2030 was wrong. <laughs> Professor Emily Schachberg, a climate scientist at the University of Cambridge, said firms such as Shell should focus on accelerating the green transition rather than trying to suggest the more vulnerable in society. Uh, in any way best served by prolonging our use of oil and gas. Mr. Swan told the BBC, I respectfully disagree. He added, what would be dangerous and irresponsible is cutting oil and gas production so that the cost of living, as we saw last year, starts to shoot up again. The world is in a race to ditch fossil fuels in favour of green alternatives, as globally leaders have pledged to keep the world from warming by more than 1.5 degrees this century. Last year, the European Commission outlined how the EU would speed up its shift to green energy to end its dependency on Russia, Russian oil and gas. And many countries do not have the infrastructure to move to more sustainable forms of energy. And, you know, we see um, activists like Just Stop Oil uh, disrupting various sports events, um, and most recently the Wimbledon tournament which is currently uh, taking place in other news um, a giant stone artifact found on the rare ice age site in Kent researchers in Kent have unearthed some of the largest early prehistoric stone tools ever found in Britain excavations revealed artifacts in deep ice age sediments preserved on a hillside above the Medway Valley a total of 800 artifacts thought to be more than 300,000 years old and buried in material which filled a sinkhole and ancient river channel were discovered. Senior archaeologist Letty Ingris said the discovery included a foot-long hand axe almost too big to be handled. Ms Ingris of UCL Institute of Archaeology said we describe these tools as giants when they are over 22 centimetres long. And we have two in this size range. The biggest, a colossal 29.5 centimetres in length, is one of the longest ever found in Britain. These hand axes are so big it's difficult to imagine how they could have been easily held and used. She speculated that the tools might have fulfilled a less practical or more symbolic function. Right now, we aren't sure why such large tools were being made or which species of early human were making them shouted. This site offers a chance to answer these exciting questions. The excavation site is thought to date to a period in the early prehistory of Britain when Neanderthal people and their cultures were beginning to emerge and may even have shared the landscape with other early human species. At this time, the Medway Valley would have been a wild landscape of wooded hills and river valleys, the researchers said. It would have been inhabited by red deer and horses, as well as less familiar mammals, such as the now-existent straight-tusked elephant and lion. The team also made a second significant find at the site, a Roman cemetery, dating to at least a quarter of a million years later in the Ice Age activity. So if you're into archaeology, that's something definitely um, of interest. Um, and I guess it is for a number of people because of 
the interesting findings that we do find and we see what history tells us and dictates um so very intriguing and i look towards the very worrying and indeed sad state of affairs that are um, happening in uh, the middle east um, a number of uh, palestinians have been uh, shot dead in the latest sort of attacks um, in the Janine province um, whereby the Israeli armed forces have uh, taken a stance in um, trying to well in their sort of uh, point of view eradicate terrorists um, terrorism but um, a, a, a prayer and a, um, a, a second to remember all of those um, individuals that have uh, sadly passed away um, and uh, you know we can certainly uh, pray and indeed ra- raise our awareness from where we are um, and just lastly um, a mention of the the NHS um, questions being raised as to um, whether or not there's a risk of the, the National Health Service falling apart um, it, you know, we, we all know we are celebrating 75 years of the, the NHS, um, but the United Kingdom's public is naturally worried. Um, Al Jazeera reports that the, the British Medical Association has warned that the NHS is at risk of falling apart. According to data, uh, access to healthcare is getting worse and there are staff and equipment shortages. Um, and a number of uh, issues with regards to uh, pay um, and, the, and the working conditions. Um, and this is you know, a conversation which a number of um, programs, radio channels and various other media platforms are having because it's so crucial um, and because the situation is so severe. But we'll take a short break and, and after the break we'll start off our first segment which will be around skills required for surviving in the world. Stay tuned. Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu Welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Uh, before the break, we've been going over some of the morning papers, um, but it's time now that we do start off our first segment, which is about skills required for surviving in the world. Perhaps it's something which most of us don't give a second or a thought towards, but it's very much so. Uh, part of our DNA uh, because of how 
um, you know, in prehistoric in the prehistoric era, or indeed in the Middle Middle Even Ages, um, how this was an intrinsic part of who we were. And the gist of the story really is that a couple of weeks ago, a plane crashed in Colombia, and a 13-year-old uh, girl survived with her younger siblings. And she's used some of the leftover items and knowledge of indigenous culture to make her way through. Um, so what are some chances of ending up in a plane crashing and reduces chances um, of even you know, staying alive? Well, the chances of a plane crash are statistically low as air travel remains one of the safest modes of transportation. And to further reduce the already minimal risk, um, you know, we can consider perhaps some of the following the things. So number one, um, choose a reputable airlines with strong safety records and well-maintained aircrafts. Um, to pay attention to safety briefings and familiarize yourself with emergency exits and evacuation procedures. Select non-stop flights whenever possible, as takeoffs and landings are typically the most critical phase of a flight. Follow any safety instructions provided by the airline crew. Uh, remain calm and composed in the unlikely event of an emergency. Um, and there's this reminds me of a of a very um, famous story um, of uh, the prophet Jonah, um, whereby yeah, in his difficult circumstance um, and a time of distress, you know we find that within the Holy Quran it's very much so recorded in chapter 21 verse 86 in which Allah the Almighty states that and remember Danun when he went away in anger and he thought that we would never cause him distress and he cried out in depths of darkness saying there is no God but thou holy art thou I have indeed been of the wrongdoers and the relevance to this is that whatever as Muslims are or at least people of religion, and we are faced with um, a conundrum or a, a worrying circumstance. It's uh, having faith from remaining steadfast as troublesome as, th- as things seem, but that is um, one of the signs of a believer. Um, but uh, moving on to what are some more basic survival skills um, that everyone should really know of? Um, for example, lighting a fire or making sure water is clean. Um, so when it comes to lighting a fire, understanding various fire starting methods and how to safely build and maintain a fire are crucial. Um, ensuring water, so cleanliness, knowing how to purify water from natural sources for safe consumption, um, shelter, another huge thing, finding or building suitable shelter to protect oneself from the elements, procuring food, learning basic foraging, fishing, or hunting techniques in a wilderness setting. Um, first aid, administering basic first aid for common injuries and medical emergencies. Um, and the list goes on. There are a number of things which, you know, um, you know, risk assessment and decision-making, uh, remaining calm and composed, um, all of these things um, are very much so required. Um, when faced with adversity uh, in the wild and the importance of having awareness of indigenous culture um, especially in today's modern society is perhaps you know a conversation worth having um, 
whereby valuable knowledge and wisdom that lies within indigenous culture um, possesses a, a unique knowledge um, about the environment, the sustainable practices that uh, they offer, and the um, the ecosystems, um, the diversity and inc- inclusivity, understanding and appreciating the indigenous cultures, um, which basically fosters a more inclusive society that values different perspectives. Um, and, you know, Islam also emphasizes the importance of diversity, respect and justice. By understanding and appreciating indigenous cultures, we, we basically embody these principles um, and try to fulfill our duty to treat all people with fairness and equality. And, you know, people um, do indeed enjoy going camping um, and it should, you know, most certainly be encouraged in order to learn these very crucial skills. Um, and that's why we should encourage camping and outdoor activities um, for learning survival skills. So you know, your practical skill, skill development um so camping offers, you know, opportunity to learn and practice essential outdoor skills, such as setting up tents, starting fires safely, purifying water and navigation, um, resilience and adaptability. You know, outdoor experiences foster resilience, um, problem-solving abilities, teamwork, uh, adaptability, crucial skills in emergency situations and everyday life. And just bringing it back to and sort of linking it with Islam, you know, seeking knowledge um, and acquiring practical skills is definitely um, one of the fundamentals of what the religion of Islam teaches. And it's important to seek uh, the Almighty's guidance and help in all endeavors and to be grateful for his assistance and protection. And when... Um, the Prophet Yunus was caught in uh, the stomach that's Jonah of a whale. God taught prayers to his Prophet, which were accepted and became a means of his deliverance from affiliation, uh, rather affliction. Um, and it's related that the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that whosoever recites this prayer, which the Prophet Yunus uh, offered in the belly of the whale, his prayer will be accepted, and that's there is no God but you, holy are you. I have indeed been of the wrongdoers. Um, and Allah kept him alive in the whale, and then, and then the whale threw him out uh, onto land. So it's a very um, uh, famous and a very um, a common sort of um, parable that we do find within the scripture of the Holy Quran. Um, and I think it goes without saying that these skills um, aren't as readily taught or spoken about or perhaps even integrated within our youth as they were perhaps, you know, um, many years ago, perhaps perhaps more than 20 odd years ago because of the way that technology has distracted us, um, to put it very uh, nicely. Um, and I think it's it's very much so important that we do teach these life skills from a very young age so that we aren't complacent so that we aren't um, in a position whereby we lose these um, very intrinsic uh, very sort of human um, related basic um, 
techniques of staying alive. You know, that that report of those children that survived in the thick forests um, of Colombia, um, a 13-year-old girl. Um, you know, it's, it's astonishing, really. Um, for any of us, perhaps I put myself first, you know, in that position whereby, number one, you've got to survive that plane crash, um, and two, you've got, you know, the entire jungle to sort of challenge uh, with so many obstacles, um, so many um, unbelievable challenges to overcome and hurdles. So it's, you know, everybody can take a, a page from her book um, and from all of the survivors to try and grasp what they went through um, and really try and adopt some of these um, life skills, really. We'll take a short break, but after the break, um, we'll have our first guest caller for this segment, um, uh, Miriam Lacewood, um, um, who has uh, lived with her husband, Peter, for seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand. So stay tuned for that. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbours. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasised consideration towards one neighbours so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbour would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbour might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbour should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favourite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbour. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbour is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbour. He asked people not to object to their neighbours driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbour. He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim. Al-Mumid. The giver of death, the one who brings death to all creatures. How can you disbelieve in Allah? When you were without life, He gave you life, and then He will cause you to die, then restore you to life. 
and then to him shall you be made to return. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here at The Voice of Islam. Before the break, we were going over some of the survival techniques that we can adopt when we are um, stranded in the wilderness. But joining us now this morning is Megan Hine. Um, very warm welcome and assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you and thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. Thank you. Good morning. Great to be on. An absolute pleasure. I understand that we were expecting you slightly later, but um, thank you so much for sparing the time. Um, Megan Hines is a TV presenter, survival consultant, celebrity expedition leader and adventure catalyst. Uh, her vast wealth of experience and knowledge gained from leading hundreds of expeditions and consulting for TV survival shows across the globe enabled her to organise unique experiences for clients to untouched and wild places. Um, in front of camera, Megan's most recent credit is as a co-host of a six-part series airing on Sky History, The Curse of the Lost Amazon Gold. Megan's first book, Mind of Survivor, was published by Coronet in May 2017. Um, Megan, from your vast and extensive experience, what are the most important skills required to survive in the most difficult of terrains, such as jungles and forests? Yeah, so when uh, you find yourself in a survival situation out in the wilderness, uh, you want to be looking to meet your priorities of survival, uh, which are shelter, food, water, uh, sleep, uh, as well as really important, and obviously safety as well in these environments. And particularly if you end up in an environment you don't know that well, so maybe a jungle that you've never been to before, and you've got to think about the, the risks associated with that, whether it's insects and you know diseases like malaria or dengue fever that could come from them, or dangerous snakes or the wildlife as well, um, and also other people if you're going into sort of hostile environments. Um. And what would you say are the most difficult situations that you have encountered uh, and how did you overcome them? So often for me, it's been uh, coming up against other people and you're traveling off to very remote corners of the world um, and cultural differences and, and things that you've run into. Um, so I've had had issues with um, being caught in the, a gunfire situation between warring tribes, which was uh, which is quite exciting. That was out in um, Africa um, during in 2017 when there was a big drought uh, mm. going on, and um, one group had stolen a load of goats from another group, and um, they'd been chased down. And I, I happened to be stunt rigging at the time in a gorge that was in right in the middle of <laughs> of this. Uh, so yeah, it was quite exciting. But and oh, things wow. like. Yeah, things like picking up disease as well. So um, actually not that remote, but in the UK, uh, picked up Lyme disease, uh, which is from which you get from ticks. Like mm. if you're going out into into the outdoors, into the forests, um, there are, you get these like little uh, ticks that kind of burrow into your skin. And if you're not careful with them, some, some of them will uh, carry Lyme disease, uh, which is starting to become more prevalent in the UK. Wow. So um, not, a, not a walk in the park, um, to the least. Um, and in your experience, how would you say children confront challenges um, in such extreme environments? And have we in the West underestimated the resilience and determination children have, especially as we are you know, more reliant on technology and other comforts? Um, ch children are incredibly resilient. Um, they are um, 
um they are um they happen to have uh they haven't sort of grown and developed uh their uh the sort of things that society puts onto us um in everyday life mm. um yeah and and and, uh, and the the aspect of sort of you know technology um and other comforts um you know do you do you personally think that um, with children, albeit you have mentioned that they are resilient, um, perhaps um, as they grow up and develop, um, these innate abilities that we should have, uh, for example, the ability to light a fire or to purify water or, um, you know, we've been covering the story of um, the plane crash um, in Colombia um, and whereby I think it was a 13-year-old girl that survived that um, managed to sort of uh, navigate the jungles um, and look after herself for I think it was a couple of weeks if I'm not mistaken um, so those abilities and those sort of um, challenges that she overcome where would you place you know the western sort of part of the world where it's you know more or less foreign for us um, I guess to jump into a jungle and sort of um, take it head on yeah, so um, so as you were saying, it's like children tend to have um, a, they're able to adapt to situations. And in this situation, it's an incredible story. The um, the children actually were um, indigenous to the local area, mm. so they were, um, they're actually from that from that local area. So they have the skills and they have the understanding. I mean, still, um, you know, we we're supposed to be, um, you know, we're we're tribal peoples. Um, so you know, we we're designed to kind of live together. Um, and um, and kind of work together and help each other through these situations. So the fact that these children, particularly there was a one-year-old baby there as well, I and mean, it's an absolutely incredible story of survival. And if we find ourselves in that situation, we don't have the knowledge of the the terrain around us there um, to kind of get through those situations. So we kind of we, we have to be able to take information and. Um, experience and things that we have from our everyday lives and transpose them and it's all about improvisation adapting and overcoming those situations um, and as much as possible trying to stay calm in those situations which is, is easier said than done indeed it is yeah um, and on that very point how would you say your experiences have shaped your outlook um, and what other experiences are you sort of planning on taking um, for the future um, so I'm actually just about to lead um, uh, an expedition with a disabled individual, which is um, incredible, uh, mm. down to the South Pole. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. Um, and all the planning done, and is that all sort of set in motion? Um, how how long does planning take for such an adventure? Um, so for that, it takes takes about um, six six months. So oh, we're wow. going to be going in. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be going in December. Well, well, all the very best, and uh, thank you so thank much you. for being with us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure and, and greatly thank insightful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Bye. That was uh, Megan Hine, um, a TV presenter, survival consultant, and celebrity expedition leader. Very interesting life to live, I must say, um, but very challenging and a very, um, um, a very brutal one. Um, uh, at least from one angle or from one lens. Um, we'll take a short break, and after the break, we'll have a pre-recorded interview with um, a guest that we spoke with, um, who is one year uh, in Tibulent, um, 
who's also very much so um, being drawn to wild places and the skills that our, our ancestors used to, or indeed all of our ancestors used to uh, thrive there. Um, so we'll play that for you. We have with us Wania Taibo, who has always been drawn to wild places and the skills of our ancestors used to thrive there. While she never considered herself a survivalist, her master's degree in environmental science and decades spent honing land-based living skills taught her how to live long-term in the wilderness. Her passion is sharing ecological knowledge, ancestral and wilderness skills to help people to live wilder, freer, more bountiful and connected lives. She splits her time between her own wild living pursuits and teaching, writing and speaking via her business, Buckskin Revolution. Welcome to The Voice of Islam and thank you for taking time out and coming on to our show, Wania. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, what inspired you to learn more about ecological skills and the wilderness? You know, I can never remember a time when I wasn't fascinated by the natural world and that knowing more about it didn't feel like the most important thing. I think that it's a fairly recent phenomenon that people have been so disconnected from the world around them and weren't dependent on their on it for their survival. And so I feel like it's kind of a, a deep programming to want to know more about it and that I happen to have been more in touch with that kind of deep ancestral programming than many in today's modern world. So I think it came from somewhere deep inside and was just always present in me. So when you heard about the story about these small group of children surviving the plane crash and how the 13-year-old girl used ecological knowledge what did you think of it and what can we take away from this? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think that I was less surprised than a lot of people about the fact that the children survived and and even that a 13-year-old was capable of, you know, keeping four children including young children alive through that because those are the skills that are innate in us and humans and in most traditional cultures a 13-year-old would be considered to have a wide range of all of that knowledge and skill. So I think the fact that these children came from the forest, the fact that they are native to that place and therefore knew about it is, is a really beautiful illustration of what we can all be more capable of if we are in tune with our environment and used to living in a more reciprocal way with it. So while I think it's an amazing and incredible story, it's not as shocking to me that they made it through as I feel like it is to a lot of other people. It's an illustration of, of how it should be. A hundred percent. I agree with you. Um, you mentioned 13-year-old. In, in, in uh, today's day and age, in modern-day education systems, 13-year-olds don't have that knowledge that this 13-year-old displayed. Do you think it's surely because of cultural um, knowledge that uh, she had these skills because clearly these skills were something she grew up with. And isn't that right. something that needs to be kind of inculcated in, in, in our youngsters within the modern day education system? Absolutely. I think it is. I think that getting out into the local environment and learning about the plants and the environment and how you can learn about the environment through the plants that live there, learn about the animals through 
knowing what plants are there. Um, yeah, I think that it should actually be a part of all curriculum from the youngest age on. And that if we were living in a way that was more deeply connected, that would naturally happen. So I'm a big advocate of things like, you know, forest kindergartens and schools that take place outdoors as opposed to in classrooms because there's so much knowledge there and by having it be integrated in the kids education as opposed to okay now it's you know now it's one o'clock here's when we take out our books about ecological knowledge um that those things would would get into us from a younger age much more easily and that that would also make us much more well-rounded healthy grounded people and honestly would alleviate a lot of the of modern society that we that we see without a doubt now could you tell us a little bit more about the alone solo wilderness survival challenge yeah absolutely you know both of my experiences on the alone show were absolutely amazing and transformative experiences and i think that one of the things that happens with shows like that is they tend to focus on you know the drama and the challenge and the danger and make it really seem like the living world is out to get us, you know, the whole man versus nature idea. And I think that there's ways, like while an extreme wilderness challenge like that was really amazing for me, there's also ways where they kind of share the wrong message because they make it seem like it's so intense and dangerous. And it's because of those shows, and alone in particular, you know, it, it puts people out in circumstances that are not well geared towards living there sustainably. They're putting them out, you know, late enough in the year that there's not a lot of resources. They're giving people strict boundaries that they can't leave, so they can't travel to get resources. They're putting people, of course, out alone where we evolved to do these things in community and to support one another. So, um, you know, I love getting to talk about the experience and point out the ways where, it's both an incredible challenge and it's also 100% innate and what we were born to do and evolved to do. So I kind of have two minds about the nature of challenges like the ones I did on Alone. And how would you encourage people to get into um, learning about the importance of ecological skills? And is there an age limit or a restriction or it's, uh, it's forever learning? <laughs> Yeah, I, I absolutely think that there's no age limit, that it's great for people to learn, you know, as we talked about, from from age two up through, you know, up through elderhood, that there's never a time when these skills aren't important and appropriate. And I think that there are a lot of ways to access them. And of course, it's more challenging if you're living in an urban environment than in a rural environment. But I really encourage people to start to get to know two larger groups, and that is birds, and plants because no matter where you are, you know, birds have wings and seeds travel on the wind. So even in the most urban environment, there are weeds growing up through cracks in the concrete and there are birds present in every environment because birds have the ability to fly and get places. So that's a way that you can really um, ground that nature connection in your daily life. And I offer all kinds of courses, both in person and online so that people can access this kind of information anywhere they are and starting at whatever skill level. So really trying to make them attainable as opposed to, you know, put people like myself who've done these extreme wilderness challenges on a pedestal and think, oh, I could never do something like that. Having baby steps so that people realize that they absolutely can do that and that it starts as much with 
mindset and fostering connections as it does with the harder skills like fire and shelter and hunting. Now, Monique, I can ask you loads more questions, but because of the <laughs> shortage of time limit, there's one question I just, it's just, it, it comes to mind when one thinks of wilderness and ecology and going out there, um, you know, in, in the wild. We are a voice of Islam. We are a faith-based channel as well. The environment that, that you have described, wilderness, ecology, when one looks around and looks at the beauty of nature, do you think it it it's a vehicle to get in touch with your creator because you're much more closer to his natural creation? Yeah, you know, so I, I wasn't raised with any formal religion, but I'm definitely a spiritual person. And I do think that there is a reason why scenes of nature and immersion in nature is a part of most major world religions. And I absolutely think that it is a lot harder to come from a place of skepticism and a lack of faith when you really start paying attention to things in the natural world. I mean, the, the wonder and the beauty and the way all of the living systems work together so well, to me, that's really um, a manifestation of something something greater, greater than and man. deep knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, wonderful. absolutely. Wania, thank you so much for taking time out and uh, answering answering uh, our questions and, and bringing some insight into the topic um, of the day. I wish you a fantastic evening ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you. With you as well. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, may peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here at The Voice of Islam. Joining us now is uh, Miriam Lancewood. A very warm welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be on the show. Thank An absolute you. pleasure. Um, Miriam Lancewood lived with her husband, Peter, for seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand. They left civilization in 2010 and walked into the mountains with not much more than a backpack. They roamed around like nomads, slept in a tent, cooked on a fire, and Miriam learned to hunt with bow and arrow. They live like hunter-gatherers. The observations and experiences are unique in this technological world. Uh, since Miriam met Peter in 2006, they have been nomadic and lived and travelled in many different countries. And at present, they are in the uh, Rodopi Mountains in Bulgaria, East Europe. Miriam's memoir, Women in the Wilderness, became an international bestseller. And in 2020, the sequel, Wild at Heart, came out, and in 20. 20- Three, she co-edited a new publication called Wilder Journeys. Um, very interesting. I don't know where to begin, really. Um, Miriam, <laughs> you lived in the wilderness with your husband for seven years. How did that even happen? Right, and yeah. um, challenges and all sorts. How did you sort of manage uh, living in the wilderness? Well, let's start at the beginning. I was born in Holland, but I immigrated to New Zealand, where my husband is from. Mm-hmm. And I was working there as a teacher. And every weekend, we used to go out in the mountains and, and camp and cook on a fire. 
but we didn't want to come back on the Sunday afternoon. Mm. And so we said, why can we not do something extraordinary, some expedition? Why not live for four seasons in the wilderness of New Zealand in the, in the high mountains? And that's what we set out to do, because we wanted to be part of nature rather than just an observer. I mean, completely one with nature. And that's what we set out to do. Little did we know that we will last seven years in New Zealand's wilderness. Wow. So, yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> um, and what are some of the challenges that you faced in the wilderness? Um, you know, for example, shelter or purifying water, some of the things that we've been talking about this morning. Um, how do you overcome them and, and to what degree um, of uh, adversity did you face? Well, what we call the human world, as in civilization, you are in control of everything, right? If humans want to build a road, they just do so with the machines, right? <laughs> but in the wilderness, you are totally subject to nature. You're subject to uh, the weather. Um, if a big storm comes, we have to organize ourselves, otherwise we might die. Or, uh, you know, if the river is too big, we can't cross. If we can't find firewood, we can't light a fire, we can't eat. And if I can't find anything to hunt, we have no meat to eat. So we are totally subject to everything. And that is an amazing difference that uh, we feel so small compared to the big mountains. And I think that puts us humans in the right place. And that gives us sort of a peace of mind. So the challenge was to go from, you know, the powerful person to the surrendering person. Incredible. Truly phenomenal. Um, and... How does it really feel to constantly change your place of residence? Um, and how do you get used to new customs? Yeah, so since I met my husband, Peter, um, in 2006 indeed, we have changed and, and lived all over the world. And what I discovered is that I am actually a different person in different places. Mm. I am not a stable personality. <laughs> we only think we are. Uh, we think we are a person. You've got a self, right? But no, the moment you go to another culture, you are a different person. And I think that's brilliant. And that keeps me flexible. And I discover loads about myself and about the culture I come up, come from and the, per and the culture I visit. So I think it's great. Yeah, I love it. Fantastic. I mean, just putting myself in your position, you know, it takes a great deal of courage, really, um, sort of, I guess, um, cut away from the world and all of its um, comforts um, and what have you and take this challenge. It's truly incredible. And that sort of takes me on to the book that you wrote um, titled Woman in the Wilderness. Could you tell us more about the book um, and why it's special for you to live as a woman um, in the wilderness? Yeah, so I wrote, yeah, it's really just um, describing our seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand, quite chronological, how I started as a teacher, how I resigned from my job, how to give up all the belongings, mm. how um, much more free I felt um, getting rid of all the belongings, as though those belongings take up a little space in your head. You know, when you have a car, you have to worry about it, you know, fix it, keep it clean, pay the registration, etc. If you don't have a car, you have none of all that. Mm. And the same for a house and the same for pets and all of these things that are our belongings. So, um, yeah, that, all that I described so people can relate to that. Or maybe not. <laughs> no, well. And 
Uh, yeah, I called it woman in the wilderness because it's so rare. And also from a marketing point of view, there are plenty of men in the wilderness, but not many women. Mm. And uh, I think that's a more uh, original idea. And But of course, I was with my husband. We were always together. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And, and since you know you have this experience of living in the wilderness, um, mm. to what extent has this changed your life and your environment? And have other people reacted to your escape? I'm sure you have near and dear ones. You know what were their sort of initial thoughts? Yeah. So what I described in the beginning is that we learned how to surrender. To the environment we're so very small and our worries and problems from the past seem to dissolve rather than being solved by thinking about it all the problems seem to dissolve when you live out in nature and um, instead of that your mind becomes more clear and more free and more empty in a way but in a good way and um, yeah so I find that I got more clarity and I think you need clarity in order to make important decisions in life. Uh, if you make decisions when your mind is not clear, then you just get into more trouble, right? Yeah. And so your second question about my friends and family, they really liked uh, me living in nature. And they appreciated that I wrote letters. So I wrote letters with pen and paper. Mm-hmm. And when um, we saw another hunter, I would quickly give the letter in an envelope and the stamps were already on it. And they would post it when they were in town. And so they uh, would receive some news. But that could only be maybe once in three months, three, four months. So oh. very sporadic. But yeah, they really liked it. Um, I think the thing they, they struggle with the most is my husband, who is 30 years older. I think after that initial shock, <laughs> living in the wilderness was not such a problem. Yeah, that's true. Um, And just lastly, Miriam, (laughs) what advice or what, you know, um, um, sort of golden advice, should I say, would you give to those people that are skeptical on um, even going for walks that are comfortable in, uh, you know, within their homes and indeed on their sofas um, how would you sort of encourage people to explore the wilderness to explore nature and our surroundings oh anyone who would go for a walk even in a park would see the benefits of being among the trees mm-hmm. and i think every single person would become more calm so i think nature is very healing and uh, gives some peace of mind so anyone who tries would <laughs> would absolutely see that yeah my other piece of advice is if you sleep enough, then you will become a different person. I think most people are sleep deprived. Mm. And I would say even if you camp out one night and have a good night's sleep, you feel so rejuvenated. Definitely. You know, it's definitely um, a different sort of life, but a very intriguing and a very interesting life to say the very least. Um, and perhaps, you know, mm. some of our listeners might take a chapter out of your book. Uh, and adopt at least an aspect of it. Um, but it's been very um, interesting, and thank you so much for joining us this morning, Miriam. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully we can hear from your stories again in the very near future. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. That was Miriam uh, Lancewood, um, who has travelled the wilderness of New Zealand uh, for seven years so very interesting um, to say the least we'll take a short break and after the break we'll uh, continue with this segment or indeed wrap this segment up and uh, start off 
the next segment, which will be about an also equally interesting thing um, around society and understanding and responding to the issue of honesty. So stay tuned for that. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, my peace upon you. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. Before the break, we were listening into um, uh, one of our guest callers in Miriam Lancewood on her experiences on uh, living in the wild for the past seven years uh, with her husband in New Zealand. So very interesting to hear from her. Um, we also have an audio clip. Um, regarding uh, the uh, point of view of which Islam presents um, on how His Holiness um, shared a moment of hardship and how he dealt with it. So I'll play that for you now. My question is that could Hazur share a moment where Hazur encountered hardship and how Hazur dealt with it? Hardships are part of your life. So why should I mention? If I say and I faced any hardship, that means I did not re- understand the spirit of my work, so I cannot mention. <laughs> right? Okay? I never faced any hardship. I always saw Allah's fadl on me. Okay? Yes, Jazakallah. Okay. Assalamu So, His Holiness there being uh, extremely humble in his um, answer, and uh, indeed, you know, this, this is just the status of the Khalifa or the Caliph of God, whereby um, even um, as hardships are um, part of one's life, they are seen as um, a blessing of sorts because it's um, only the believers that are put through uh, difficult situations and trials and tribulations. Um, Moving on and forward now to our second segment, a very interesting segment about honesty and how uh, our society is grappling with understanding and trying to respond with this very issue. Um, And the gist of the story really is based on people's reactions to the news information found online. Um, It's becoming an interesting observation on how society is understanding and responding to the issues of honesty. So, why is honesty such an important part of societal behaviour? Well, the easiest thing you can practice in order to be happy, um, successful and fulfilled um, is really, well, one of, them, one of those parts is honesty. Um, it's the foundation of um, core values and principles. Honesty also promotes openness, empowers us, and enables us to develop consistency in how we present the facts. 
honestly sharpens our perception and allows us to observe everything around us with clarity. And the worst type of lying we practice in order to see is when we lie to ourselves. We start messing around with our concept of morality, right and wrong, as well as our dreams and desires. And honesty, um, in, in fact, it um, engenders confidence, faith, and empowers our willpower and represents us in the best way for others to see and witness our example. Uh, Ali bin Abi Talib, the cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, with the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mentioned that the positive reciprocal efforts of behaving truthfully with people in the worldly life, um, and he said that whoever does three things with regards to people, they will necessitate three things from him. Whenever he speaks to them, he is truthful. Whenever they entrust him with something, he does not betray them. And whenever he promises them something, he fulfills it. If he does this, their hearts will love him, their tongues will praise him, and they will come to his aid. And the Holy Prophet peace be upon him said, "Truth saves, falsehood destroys." So, at least from an Islamic point of view, um, you know, honesty is indeed an integral part of what it means to be a Muslim. And naturally, you know, these attributes are are very much so um, considered to be uh, integral for a human being that wants to at least, at least perceive to be um, uh, an individual of some form of integrity. But joining us now this morning for this first segment is uh, uh, Philip Sergin. A very warm welcome and assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Uh, Philip teaches and researches language and communication at the Open University with a particular focus on political communication. His recent books include The Art of Political Storytelling and Political Activism and the Linguistic Landscape, the forthcoming uh, future of language and how technology, politics and utopianism are transforming the way we communicate. Um, Philip, if I can start off by asking you, um, it, it appears that the political communication has become infused with dishonesty. Um, you know, unfortunately, the two have been aligned for you know time immemorial. Really, what are yeah. the reasons for this? The reasons that it's got so bad now. Um, well, one reason is um, social media. I think um, the way that um, polarized their opinions. Um, which um, which are produced by the way that social media works. They're built into the um, built into the business model, if you like, um, have become so prevalent. And because of this sort of um, rational debate, has got lost somewhere in this oh, vicious, often vicious um, attack from one side to the other. So it's become much more stereotypical and things like this. And the lack of emotional, uh, the lack of sorry, rational debate um, gives way to a sort of more emotional um, conflict. And I think part within that, ideas of honesty um, get sidelined, if you like. Um, and has integrity and respect become defined through the lens of fake news? Yes. So fake news, um, the term fake news has been around for about seven years or so. Mm. Um, and it's, again, very much related to social media. It's the idea that people are purposefully putting out disinformation 
as a form of propaganda, I suppose, um, intent on um, persuading, well, more than persuading, manipulating people. Um, and and it becomes almost an arms race uh, in a way. Um, politicians feel, some politicians certainly feel that, that this is the best way um, to get support and to ultimately uh, um, get power. Um, and fake news is, is obviously based on the idea of disinformation, false information, um, using falsehood to manipulate or undermine um, the, the political discourse. And in terms of the, the, the pursuits of populism, do you believe yeah. that that's led us to, to a place where you know, dishonesty now is acceptable if it supports your narrative? It, it seems that that seems to be the case in populism. I mean, of course, there's there's always the question of whether uh, people who are pushing these things necessarily believe in what they're saying or not. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a tactic. A disinformation is a particular tactic that can be used um, to, um, as I say, to sort of undermine uh, the democratic process. But with some people, you're never, never quite sure if they believe it or, or not. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump, for example, it's very difficult to tell whether he actually believes that the election was stolen from him or whether it's just a tactic. For certain, in certain contexts, it is very much a, a propaganda tactic. Indeed. Um, and just lastly, Philip, the proliferation of fake news has a significant yeah. impact on society. Um question will always be asked is how can these foundations be rebuilt at a time where such dishonesty is rampant it is uh, this is a real a real challenge for us i think i think partly it, it is to do with the way that the media works the way that the media can be regulated i mean at, at, at the very heart of this issue is mm. that in a democracy in a liberal democracy you it, the, the, the the system works on people being able to make informed choices. And so they need infor to be informed. They need um, reliable, trustworthy information. Um, and if we don't have that, that undermines the whole, the whole process. You know, it, it means we, we as individuals don't have um, a proper say in, in society. So it's very much to do with the system as it works. And I think that's where it needs to come. Uh, I think it, that's where it needs to be um, uh, to be addressed in the way that the, the news media, the media in general, um, is regulated, how they're financed. I mean, uh, there's obviously a, a big, um, there's a lot of pressure on media because they, they don't have the, the finances that mm -hmm. they did before. Um, and it, it's ultimately the system itself it's when the system itself uh, um, can't support uh, these things that it can be uh, exploited by bad actors who want, for whatever reason, either to gain power for themselves or to undermine uh, um, the power of others. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's a tricky situation we're in now. And just to add, it's very possibly likely going to get worse with... Um, the innovations in uh, artificial, artificial intelligence and the way that new technologies like that can be um, exploited. So now is very much the time to 
see see sort of learn the lessons of the last uh, 15 years of social media and make sure we put something in place for how communications technologies in the future can have an impact on things like trust, honesty, and um, integrity um, in public life. Indeed, you know, you've, you've touched upon a very interesting topic there in AI, um, and that's yeah. transforming um, the whole political um, sort of picture here. Um, yeah. and, and hence, I think Biden is due to visit us on um, the 10th of July, um, based on this very conversation. But um, I, I think just lastly, in fact, another question popped into my mind was yeah, to do with, um, yeah. one would have thought that with with such a, a level of an education, um, naturally, you know, the people that are in power, um, yeah. you know, aren't there randomly, you know, they've done something to be there. Um, surely, um, you know, after having, have, after going through such a course and through such uh, hurdles, um, a level of integrity, a level of honesty um, should be very much so a part of their characteristics. Well, now, we're not painting everybody with the same brush, but, you oh. know, the two have been aligned, um, the, the politics and the dishonesty, um, for so long but how has this crept into our sort of political um, environment um, and how old do you reckon this problem is well as you said uh, you said uh, earlier on in many ways it's time immemorial mm-hmm. but it is very much related um, to particular social circumstances so I think it's uh, you know a lot of people in the world are finding it extremely difficult globalization has has had benefits but also caused lots of problems and so it's it, it's a particularly um there's a particular a lot of particular issues that have come up in the last 10 years um that have made people generally feel um feel a lack of lack of control and lack of support in their lives and then this can be exploited you know, this is what populism does. It gives simple, often unrealistic uh, answers um, or su- suggests answers. They're not real answers. Um, and people feel that that's worth a try because the, the way things have been um, before hasn't been working. In terms of the integrity of the individuals, I mean, that, that this, is, this is one of those paradoxes of um, politics generally. You know, people who who um who want power so certain people who pursue power are often not necessarily the right people to to hold power um and you know it is it's it, it can be a dirty business uh integrity can be difficult to um maintain even even in in in, in sort of best case scenarios and unfortunately the system we're seeing especially because of these the, impact of new technology over the last few years can be exploited by people who obviously don't have that sort of integrity that we'd like to see in our uh, public figures. Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Um, Greatly insightful and hopefully we can hear from you in the very near future. Lovely. Many thanks for having me on. Many thanks. That's uh, Philip Sergeant, teaches and researches language and communication at the Open University. We'll take a short break and after break we'll continue with this segment and have a number of various other guest callers joining us. Stay tuned. Allah. 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you, and welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Um, joining us now is Darren Lilika. A very warm welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Apologies, I should have said Professor Darren. Um, Professor Darren of Political Communication at Bournemouth University. Um, we've been talking about fake news, um, the segment being around honesty um, and how it's an integral part, or at least it should be an integral part of our society um, and communities. But um, an angle here that we're taking is of uh, disinformation um, and how it's so widespread these days. Uh, Professor, how do you think it's come about? Um, and why are people spreading lies so widely? Well, I suppose it, it, it depends how we define fake news. Um, mm. it's, it's been a, a term that's sort of been weaponized and, and you know, obviously famously by Donald Trump. Mm. Um, I, th- I think the problem is that, that with social media, that there's a range of content which reigns, ranges from people's opinions um, all the way through to... Um, lies and, and false content, which is deliberately um, produced to manipulate people, and we all act as as sort of conduits for that information. Um, and what we find is that that people will see content on their newsfeed that is is funny, that shocking, surprising, but in some way engaging, and they share it without any real careful consideration. Um, about the effect it could have, whether it's true or not, it, it's just simply to to get a reaction. Often, you know, sort of just to amuse their followers, and I think that's where the the problem is with its being widespread. There is no gatekeeper as there was when it was just the mainstream media. And in, in terms of how widespread the lies are on the political level, um, why do many people think that politicians are not honest? Well, I think one thing is that, that when a politician is found to be dishonest and, and, you know, if we think about the last couple of years in the UK and all the the stories around Partygate and Boris Johnson, um, you know, they, they build an impression uh, among people that, that politicians are willing to lie and happy to lie. Um, and, of course, there's no... Um, no good headline in politician is honest. Um, so, you know, whenever a, whenever something goes wrong in politics, even if it is down to a small number of people who are actually elected, um, it is big news. Um, and then outside of politics, you know, there, there are the lies which are spread by a variety of different actors for, um, you know, political purposes to manipulate people. Um, but I think people are just becoming more and more 
mistrustful of politicians because of the negative news about them. But what, just to play the, um, I wouldn't say devil's advocate as such, but um, to give a response to that in terms of um, uh, politicians in general, um, there have been good politicians um, and um, there are a number of good you know, politicians. But why is it that here, at least in the United Kingdom, there's always a great deal of, dare I say, pressure or... Um, an extreme level of accountability whenever um, a politician does put a foot wrong. Um, you know, if we perhaps um, take it further back um, before the Partygate scandal, um, were there, was, was the political um, environment level um, to such a degree with where we find it now, where, you know, the two are even more aligned, that's dishonesty and uh, politics, than we see it today? Well, it, it's, it's hard to say. I, I mean, trust levels have been declining over, over quite a long period of time, the last 20, 30 years. Um, and, and that does seem to have aligned more closely with increased media scrutiny um, and, and accountability of politicians. And, you know, I, I think that, that sort of deference to politicians of a previous age has gone, you know, the, the, the Jeremy Paxman style, mm. uh, where, you know, he did, you know, sort of challenge politicians with that, you know, perspective of, you know, are they lying? You know, I, I think that, that, that had an, an impact on, on public trust, but of course they should be accountable and, you know, they, they are public servants, they are elected to represent people. And so, you know, whatever they are doing that is is not in line with that, whether that be, um, you know, the, the the problems of vested interests and whether taking money from businesses or whether they're being dishonest, that that should be put in put out in the open. And you know, where where the media find examples of that, they should expose it. You know, so you know, I I, I don't think there's there's anything that can really change about it. However, <laughs> you know. The problem really is where politicians are not doing their job as representatives. And we've been talking about fake news um, and you know how we've sort of defined what it is. But um, how how can uh, politics um, and indeed politicians reduce the rumours and indeed the fake news um, from being normalised? Well, I think politicians themselves need to be more honest and transparent. And so, you know, politicians um, will give alternative interpretations of data. Um, a government may say, you know, this is this is a, a an example of our, our evidence that we have, our policies are working, and the opposition can say, well, actually, this is not what we see in this data. That's always happened, but I think that they need to be a little bit more open about that. Um, a lot of politicians, and and partially this is because of the the, the amount that, of time they're allowed, they're quite squeezed in terms of the, their ability to sort of have a longer argument in, uh, on the media that reaches people. But they need to be more transparent that this is our interpretation of data, that, that this is our opinion based on our you know, position as a politician within this party. And where they make a claim to fact, they should be evidencing that and showing where that evidence comes from. 
And I think one of the problems is many politicians make these statements um, such as it is right to say or it is right that we are doing something, mm. uh, which is a claim of truth. But it's, it's unclear where that claim, how that claim can be substantiated. Um, and I think that's one of those problems that people often feel that they're being manipulated. I think on the other hand, though, uh, in terms of the sharing of content, and, and this is something that largely, you know, so politicians struggle with, is how to regulate social media. And I think this is where we as the users need to be more careful. Um, social media seems almost designed to bypass our critical function. You know, we, we engage with it in, as, as sort of entertainment, um, but we don't necessarily think, is this true? Um, you know, is this fact? We just engage with it. And, and so I think people need to be more aware of and, and, and cautious of what they share and, you know, not just it's confirming what they already believe, but is it actually true? And I think that's something that perhaps we need to be getting used to. You know, social media has, has, has really sort of changed the way things happen, but very, very quickly. And so, you know, the human brain is still adapting to these processes. Um, and I think becoming more aware of fake news. Um, experiments show that, that people can, can spot something that could be fake. But if that experiment replicates the social media browsing experience, they don't engage that critical function. They just share because it's quite entertaining. Professor Darren Linker, it's been very interesting and most definitely social media does have a, a role to play, but uh, only time will tell on whether that's to our detriment or to a level of positivity. Uh, but thank you so much for being with us and uh, hopefully we can hear from you from the very next future. My pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. That was Professor Darren Lilliker, Professor of Political Communication at Bournemouth University. Joining us now is uh, Professor uh, Petros. Um, a very warm welcome and thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, pleasure. Professor Petros, uh, Professor in the Media Policy and Associate Dean at EDI at City, University of London, and he has acknowledged expertise in the realms of communication policy, public service media, and regulation of social media. He's also contributed to numerous books, um, chapters, and that he has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals, and he has served as an ESRC and AHRC uh, peer review college reviewer as principal editor of the Journal of Digital Media and AMP. Um, Professor if I could start off by asking you with regards to social media, which we've been talking about, um, it's largely uncensored. What challenges does this present when fake news is being decimated with such regularity? Yes, hello. you are quite right. Social media are quite uncensored. I mean, the environment there is chaotic, to put it um, that way. Uh, the, the positive thing is if you leave some media uncensored, that means that they can develop without regulation, of course. But the downside is that uh, sometimes, um, or more often than not, uh, they come up with uh, uh, such sort of problems, such as the spreading of uh, the so-called uh, fake news. Um, uh, can I just distinguish first that uh, fake news can be divided into uh, misinformation that is um, uh, uh, 
uh, is um, the, the no intent. There's no intent there to confuse uh, people. But the most dangerous aspect of that is this information, which is false or misleading information, and this uh, um, there in order to uh, intentionally uh, spread fake news. So uh, the, the fake news also uh, like to say that it's not a really new phenomenon. I mean, if you go back to the Cold War era, Soviet Union were spreading so-called fake news back then. The difference, um, I think, today is that this news can be spread more rapidly, more speedily, and more widely through uh, social media. And uh, that has got a huge effect on society, on democracy, on uh, public sphere, uh, human rights, because our ba- it, it's a basic human right to, mm. to be able to receive uh, um, reliable, accurate information. Um, Professor, digital media platforms have begun to replace conventional forms for those uh, consuming news. Um, how, with dishonesty on the rise, what effects will have this um, on the wider society, and will it begin to underpin our society telling the truth? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, many people today consume news um, through uh, social media rather than conventional media. If I remember well, there was a uh, Pew Research Center uh, that uh, came up in uh, about three years ago with the conclusion that over half of the Americans get the news via social media, and that, of course, uh, is the case in other countries as well. So, yes, it is true that platforms have replaced social um, uh, conventional forms of consuming news. That um, is... Um, uh, both a positive and negative thing, because as I said, uh, you can consume more news more rapidly. Uh, at the same time, there is no such checks as there were in the uh, as, uh, in, in the period of conventional media through editors, etc. I mean, the rapid um, uh, um, spread of information through social media doesn't uh, allow for much checks um, and, uh, regarding accuracy of these news before they reach uh, the public. So, yeah, democracy, as I said before, is at risk. This um, issue may undermine um, the the public sphere, human rights, um, because citizens are not accessing reliable and accurate news. And the consequence of that is that then, as a human being, you cannot take informed decisions uh, about um, uh, issues. Um, take, for example, the recent um, COVID-19, um, the, the pandemic. <clears throat> uh, there were many uh, conspiracy theories spread back then regarding, for example, vaccination or not. And uh, if, uh, if I recall well, I mean, there was the World Health Organization that came up with the idea that we are dealing not only with a, a pandemic, but also an infodemic. So um, this, is, this is a serious issue. And if you go back a couple of years, I mean, I live in the UK, so in terms of Brexit, for example, the Leave campaign uh, spread through social media some uh, information that was not accurate, for example, about migrants that were ready to enter the UK and so on. So yes, um, the platforms have replaced 
conventional forms of consuming use. It is a positive issue, theoretically, but it can, can have many down, downsides if, if you do not uh, regulate um, uh, platforms. Indeed, you know, that will be, it's very much so troublesome um, and a huge challenge for our governments to sort of overcome. Um, Professor Petrus, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us this morning um, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was uh, Professor Petrus, uh, Professor in Media Policy Association, Associate Dean, rather, EDI at City University of London. Um, we'll take a short break and after the break, we'll play a pre-recorded interview, um, an interview that was conducted by one of our team members um, uh, for Artif Rashid, who is a former BBC journalist, who's now heading up the independent non-profit news organisation, Analyst News, which features in-depth reporting on issues around justice, geopolitics and society. So I'll play that for you shortly. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Dear listeners, I'm delighted to have with me uh, Atif Rashid, who is a former BBC journalist and who is now heading up the independent non profit news organization Analyst News, which features in just reporting on issues of justice, geopolitics, and society. Atif Rashid, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, Adarjit, um, I just want to know that um, we live in a society where people always claim about fake news and dishonesty. Mm. And what effect has such actions on the wider society, and has it caused for trust to be broken? Yeah, I mean, of course it's had a massive effect. You've seen how society has become polarized. You've seen French riots in recent days. And you've seen how, you know, it was mentioned that social media has a role to play in that as well. You know, how people are mobilized using social media. And also trust in general is eroding, not only of institutions and politics, but also of um, media and journalism. The mainstream media, which was once, you know, the bastion of truth and honesty and good reporting, isn't trusted as much as it used to be. And there's much more skepticism about, um, about it. Um, and so, you know, that's not just in society in general or about politics, but... The, the emergence of social media and all of these independent platforms and all these new different platforms, um, that's thrown everything into, you know, um, confusion because now it's easy to become a content creator. Anyone can tweet anything. Anyone can make a YouTube uh, video. And, you know, I saw this report of that half of Americans believe that the media actually tries to mislead them or to persuade the public to adopt a particular point of view, you know, through their reporting, Right. And you see this in the tabloids as well and how they spoke, uh, they stoke anti-immigrant rhetoric, Islamophobia, you know, anti-Semitism, all sorts of things like that. So obviously the media has a great impact on society and also you've seen like Trump and how he labels um, mainstream news organizations like CNN and others like fake news, right? And that's made all of this worse because now the public is already skeptical about these news organizations. And if a, a, a president like Donald Trump previous president, he's saying that's all fake news, then people are going to believe him, and they do. So we're living in a time where you don't know what's true and what's not, because there was, even AI has made that worse, because, um, you know, there was this uh, picture of the Pope um, wearing a puffer jacket, 
right? And it looked really real and people believed it, even I wasn't sure. Um, and that was just an AI created uh, image which wasn't actually uh, rooted in reality. So that's added a complete new dimension to it. Um, but it's, it's a problem that's existed through, through the ages as well. It's not something new, like gossip and salacious news that, you know, uh, has existed for centuries, right? And there's reasons why it's done is, you know, you can harm a political opponent, smear them, you know, make them lose their kind of standing in society. It can be for financial gain, it can be for clickbait, you know, to get gain traction and followers. But now with digital media, social media, it just spreads uh, much more faster. And because you said that social media spread quite fast, um, do you think that social media is providing more of a balanced perspective than news outlets like BBC, CNN, C CNN, etc.? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because it depends whether you um, consider mainstream media to be the cause of fake news or not. Um, but it's true that mainstream media can get things wrong, and it does. Um, and social media, I mean there is that positive aspect that it can challenge the mainstream narrative when perhaps the mainstream narrative isn't the one which is uh, based in truth or justice. Like you see the Iraq war, for example, right, going back 20 years, we saw the whole mainstream media was pushing for invasion of Iraq, basically, and there's very few who were challenging yeah. that. If social media has ex existed uh, in that day as it does today, maybe uh, these politicians, these media companies would have been challenged much better. So it has almost democratized information and news but at the same time it's also subject to abuse because we know there's people who have got um, certain intentions which um, aren't rooted in truth or in fairness and they just want to kind of create disorder so there is two sides to it I mean there are benefits to it but I think there's a lot of harm and I think a lot of the harm is what we're seeing right now. Mm, I understand and uh, you know come back to journalism because you know I always thought that journalists are supposed to practice integrity and respect. Do you think um, that these kind of characters can still be found in mainstream journalism? Yeah, I mean, they're still meant to practice that. And I, I generally feel, having worked in the industry for uh, quite a few years, I still think most journalists are trying to do a good job and they do go in with integrity. I mean, it's intention that matters. But it's not just intention, right? It's also worldview, and what people don't understand is that every editor, every journalist is going to have their own worldview, right? And a worldview isn't necessarily right or wrong. It might just be you're looking at things from your perspective, and obviously that's going to reflect in your reporting. For example, if you're a Muslim journalist and you're reporting on a Christian story, you're going to have some unconscious biases about Christians which might come out in your reporting. But the good thing is, like, the good journalists, they try to, they, they know their unconscious bias, and they try to be a bit more balanced and a bit more fair. Um, and I don't think journalists necessarily are always trying to, you know, go out of their way to mislead people, especially the ones who have some integrity. But obviously you have tabloids and these kind of newspapers who stoke a lot of hatred, and those kind of editors, they have, um, you know, it's very, like, it might be far-right worldview, and that reflects in their coverage. So that's not right. And also it's very easy to jump on certain bandwagons and start scapegoating the whole community. Um, and, you know, I, I always say, like, it's not always the editor's fault as well, because sometimes you don't know what's true and what's not. Like, um, it's, it's, we're living in an information age where truth is, you know, it's difficult to ascertain it immediately, right? And journalism, good journalism, good journalism requires a lot of investigation as well, which takes time. But um, I do think that, like, 
journalists need to be a bit more well-informed and be more careful about what they write and what they say, um, because obviously they have a responsibility, but too too often they do chase the clicks and the sensational stories just to get viewerships and, you know, have more shocking stories. Um, And I do think, like, journalism as a profession needs to be reminded about their... um, about their responsibilities and not to give publicity, for example, to extremists, which you know have had a lot of platforms and on on TV and things for no good reason either, and they're not challenged efficiently. But I do think, like, like when you're learning to be a journalist, you do have those principles embedded in you of honesty, truth, um, and you know, um, kind of reporting with fairness as well. And you have regulators like Ofcom and Ipsa who do uphold that. But I do think. I mean, this is another conversation for another time, but I do think that regulation isn't as strong as it could be. But um, I think, you know, a lot of journalism still is um, rooted in um, good intentions, if even though it does get things wrong. Um, mm. I don't think there's, I don't think journalism as a profession totally is coming with malice or bad intentions. Well, because now uh, fake news and dishonesty becomes more prevalent, do you think the wider society has still interest in watching news or listening news or reading news? Yeah, I think um, society is moving on, like especially the younger audiences um, who are growing up in the age of social media, um, Generation Z, Gen Z, and you know millennials even. They're more um, consuming news on social media. There was a report a while ago which like a third of people get the news from social media and certainly I worked at the BBC certainly people were tuning off from TV from radio from the traditional news uh, websites uh, and uh, tri- uh, I mean the traditional news platforms right they're tuning off that and they're going towards like videos and social media YouTube um, and I certainly think that's the trend podcasts are have blown up and also um, uh, youtubers and social media influencers I think they have more of an impact and more of a um, influence than mainstream news um, because if you look at some of their videos they're getting hundreds of millions of views and mainstream news like I, I think it's dwindling and you look, look at a lot of the newspapers they're kind of seeing their um, uh, readership dwindle as well and then you see like Vice News and BuzzFeed recently is um, going going under and um, and so a lot of there is a big shift in the way news is being consumed and I do think it's going to continue uh, to shift away from the mainstream. But I do think there's always, um, that's why, you know, like social media influence, they call it legacy media, this mainstream, this, this like old media, it's old news, it's not relevant anymore. Um, but I do think like for big breaking news, for when you really want to trust um, a source, I still think people will flock to the mainstream. Because look, if something happens in another country, you're going to hear about it from, you know, Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC, and you're going to probably trust them because they've got, uh, reputation and understanding. Tika, okay, fine, they get things wrong, but when it's a big story like French riots or whatever, you're going to go to them for the first point of call, you know, to find out if something has really happened. Because social media, anyone can post something, you don't know for sure. But at least these mainstream, they've got this reputation. And I think that will still exist, even though generally day to day people are tuning away. Mm. I see. Um, Adil Rajid, thank you for your time. Thank you for the answers you just gave. Very interesting to know how social media is also changing a bit, is playing also a big part now in our life. Mm. Thank you for um, And I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. So that was a, a pre-recorded interview with Adil Rashid, who is a former BBC journalist um, and now leading and heading up 
an independent non-profit news organization analyst news and with that dearest listeners we have come to the end of today's live segment of the breakfast show a huge thank you to all of our guest callers who've helped us understand and delve deeper into these topics of discussion today um a huge thanks to our producer Arifa, our researchers uh, Barida Harun, Subi Ahmed, Kafia Latif, Zoya Daniel, and Wakib, and Brother Akib in the tech. For tomorrow's program, they shall be talking about the need for charity in the current climate. And in their second segment, they'll be talking about has human intelligence reached its peak. But from all of us here, uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.